Bibles with you, go ahead and grab them. And let's, let's turn to John chapter 7 together. That's where we're going to be spending our time today. Over the course of the next uh, few minutes, we're going to work our way through this passage. Uh, that if I, can just, <laughs> if I can just be honest with you for a minute, um, I'm, I'm, I don't lie to you ordinarily. I want to make that clear. Um, by honest here, I mean, let me just reveal a little bit of, of my heart uh, this week. Uh, this is a passage that has, uh, I've described it a number of ways, and in a lot of ways, it's just kind of beaten me up. And, and, and I know that happens sometimes when we talk about that in a good way, like, man, God really, he's really working on me. And, and sometimes, sometimes though, what we mean is that, man, it's felt like trying to squeeze water out of a rock, um, and, and I know you know that. Like, I, I know if you're committed in your own spiritual disciplines, like if you read the Bible, you know sometimes you open it and just don't hear. Uh, you're, and and I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this passage. I, I know there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with God in this, right? This is, an, this is a me problem. This is a my heart. This is my ears, my eyes this week. And, and I, don't know, I don't know that I did anything particular to make that happen other than that's just where I found myself. And so I, I don't have like a clever intro. <laughs> I wish I did. I would have said that instead of what I just said. Uh, what I have for you this morning is the word of God. So let's, get, let's just get into it. If, if you're willing and able, I'd ask you to stand with me. Uh, for the reading of God's Word. We are unapologetically Bible people here. It's, it's on the authority of the Scripture alone that, that we stand, that, that it's on His authority alone that, that we do everything. It's not, what we do here is not based on human opinion. Uh, it, it's, it's not about political correctness. Um, if it were, we would have skipped chapter 6, probably. Um, but we are Bible people. So let's tune our hearts this morning to hear to hear from our God. This is John 7, starting in verse 1. We're going to go through verse 24. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him 
there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I, I, do, I do ask you now to come and, and do what we just sang, uh, to, come and, to come and speak to allow us to hear from you. Lord, I pray that my insufficiency, my weakness, my, my inability, my, my stammering tongue, and my, my slow mind wouldn't stand in the way of what you're going to do here this morning. So I pray that you would speak to us. I just, I just pray that you would give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, and, and that you would awaken our souls this morning, uh, that we might hear from you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things that we've said from the very beginning of our walk through the Gospel of John is that the fourth evangelist, uh, he's not just writing uh, history. Like he's not, he's not just writing an account of events. Like he's writing for a purpose. He says it in, in, in chapter 20, verse 31, where he says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's his sort of purpose statement. That's, that's, that's why he's writing. When God breathed out this gospel into and, and through the fourth evangelist, it was for that purpose. It was to answer a question that we all, that every single one of us has to wrestle with, that we all have to answer. And we've all asked this question, and, and it, it can be asked a number of, of different ways, and we've asked it a number of different ways as we've, we've been working through this together. Um, but historically, this is a question that, uh, that, that everyone at some point has to deal with. And it's been a root of great contention. It's been a root of great debate uh, throughout the ages. It's a question that often creates a measure of tension and some confusion. But it's one of those questions that, at least at some point, we all have to ask. And it's simply this. It's, it's who is this guy? I mean, who is this guy? It's not, it's not necessarily a, like a complex question, right? I mean, we know some facts about him, but it is one of the... It's a question that has generated a great number of differing opinions, and we actually see some of those in this passage. Coming out of chapter 6, if you were to read the first five chapters, the ministry of Jesus, the early days of his ministry, man, it seems like things are going really, really well. Okay, I mean, there's crowds coming out, some of them really big. But after chapter 6, it seems like momentum has started to shift a little bit, all right? He has just fed the 5,000. He has literally walked on water. Uh, People are chasing him around the countryside just to be near him. They're running from one side of the lake to the other, wondering. I mean, that's a following, man. That's a committed group of people chasing you around. And all of that had been really organic. Like it had been very grassroots, just sort of word of mouth. People, they, they, hadn't, they hadn't taken out ads in the local papers. There's, not like, there's none of that going on. It's just one person telling another that you have to come and see this guy. But by the end of chapter 6, by the end of chapter 6, it, we're told that after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They turned back. 
They stopped walking with him. The weight of what he was saying, the magnitude of his claims, they simply just became too much for them to bear. It became too heavy. And so in this passage, we get a glimpse of some of the varying opinions of who Jesus is. We're told in verse 5, look at that, that not even his brothers believed in him. Now, now let's be clear. That, now, they believed that he exists. It's not like they thought he was a ghost or some sort of figment of their imagination, but they, they have not trusted in him for their eternal lives. They knew him. They grew up in the same home as him. This, these are his brothers in, in that sense, not like the spiritual sense that we talk about, like, oh man, you're, you're my brother or you're my sister in Christ. That's not what they're talking about here. When John calls him his brother, he's talking about his, his, what would have been his half-siblings, and we know their names, actually. There's, they're, they're in Matthew 13, we're told his brothers are James and Joseph and Simon or, and, and Judas or, or Jude, two of them write books in the New Testament at some point. So we know eventually something's going to change. But at this point, at this point, about two and a half years into his three-year ministry, they do not believe in him. And they've been around him for a long time. And what we see is that while they don't believe in him, uh, they are more than willing to benefit from him, that the brothers of Jesus had been witnesses to, to, to both his rise to prominence and also his decline as, well, as his disciples turned away and, and no longer followed him. And so they have some thoughts. Like, like they still see some possibilities, right? They're looking at this strategically. How do we capitalize on our brother who can obviously draw a crowd? Maybe there's some Maybe there is some good in, in being part of his entourage. That's basically what they're looking for in verses 3 and 4. They say, look at that with me, in 3 and 4. They say, leave here, okay, so leave Galilee and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. They sound like publicists. Like, if you look at them a little critically, they, they sound like campaign managers, man. They're looking, to, they're looking at this whole thing from a, like a temporal perspective. How do we gain from this right now? Okay, they're, they're ready to get some billboards up on the road. They're printing up some bulk mail, right, to scatter in their target area. They're going to get the votes they needed, right? They're, they're ready to go public and draw the crowd back. They've got some Make Judea Great Again hats printed up, right? They're ready to get those things out there, man. Let's, we got to get the crowd back into this. Let's make it happen. They're ready to ride on the coattails of their brother. How do we find ourselves now in a position of power? But they have not trusted in him for salvation. They haven't. They are blind men at this point trying to lead the one who can see. Because they don't believe. They don't have faith. They don't see him as the son of God. They just see him as the son of Mary and Joseph. His brothers are still what we might call sons of chaos. At this point, they still belong to the world. But Jesus doesn't serve as a political agent. That's, that's not why he came. He doesn't serve as an agent of men. That, that's not his motivation. That's not why he, he's here. Remember, we're told in Luke 19, this is what it says, that Jesus, that the Son of Man came to seek, he came to seek and to save the lost. He told his disciples at the well in Samaria back in chapter 4. If you look back in John chapter 4, you would see him there talking with his disciples. And, and he tells them that my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You see, that's the motivation that Jesus operates with. 
is to do the will of the Father. He isn't trying to start a movement. He's not, he's not trying to get a crowd. He's just trying to be faithful to the purpose for which he was sent. And so he asks them, or he says to them, my time has not yet come. As, as one commentator said, the deepest motivation at the heart of Jesus' ministry lay not in men, nor even within himself alone, but in his profound sense of the eternal purpose of the Son, of, of God the Father. His profound sense of the eternal purpose of God the Father. So often it seems that the church is tempted to look at Jesus much like his brothers did. We see him as a teammate. We see him as somebody that if we get him on our team, right, he's getting picked first in gym, right? If we get that guy on our team, then we're going to win. He'll guarantee us the victory. We see him as a tool that will help us to craft a life that is uh, comfortable for us, one of what's been called health, wealth, and happiness, right? Just sort of an easy button, right, for the American dream. Just, yeah, I got some Jesus. Where's all the stuff? We see him as a weapon that we might wield in order to conquer our enemies, right? To get the necessary votes, to push through our preferred agendas. But Jesus demonstrates here that he did not come in order to be grafted into our priorities. He didn't come to acquiesce to our preferences or our agendas. He came ultimately for the glory of God the Father. You see, that's his purpose. That's his motivation. It's not to advance your little kingdom, all right? It's not. I, I, I know we're tempted to. Even in my heart, I feel like, come on, God. I mean, I'm, I'm, we're out here trying to plant a new church. Like, come, get on board with what we're trying to do, right? You can see how I could justify that mindset every single day. We have stepped out in faith. Now, bless. Well, I don't know that that's his plan. I have no idea what tomorrow will bring. But I know it's not about my kingdom. It's not to pave the way for my ideas. His motivation is the eternal purpose of God. His brothers wanted him to claim some glory. They wanted him to start a revolution. But it's not time yet. You see, this is the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. This isn't the Passover. And Jesus is not the Lamb of Tabernacles. He's the Lamb of God. And that comes at Passover. So it's not his time yet. It's not his time. But that doesn't mean he's hiding. Look back at verse 14. In verse 14, it says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began uh, teaching. Okay, so Jesus does make his way to Jerusalem, right? I mean, he doesn't just stay in Galilee. He actually goes into Judea. We're told back in verse 10 that he made the, the journey in private. Okay, so he didn't, he didn't ride with the family. He didn't, uh, he didn't hitch a ride with them, but he made his way into town sort of under the radar. He, he kind of snuck into town. We should remember that back in chapter 5, after he had healed a, a man, a lame man at the pool at Bethesda, that the Jews at that point determined that's the leadership. That's not all of the Jewish people as, a, as an ethnic group. It's the specific leadership there in Judea determined that it was time to destroy Jesus. Back in chapter 5, we've got to kill this man. We've got to get rid of him. We've got to do away with him. And so that means that he has a target on his back, right? He's a marked man, and, and Jesus knows that. But now we also need to be clear that the brothers of Jesus were right about something. I mean, even in, their, even in being rebuked, they were still right about one thing. They were right that Jesus does want to be known. That's true. He didn't come to the earth. 
didn't come to the earth to hide. You remember, the word became flesh not to hide among us, but to dwell among us. Jesus doesn't want, he, he does want to be known. He just, he just wants to be known genuinely. He wants to be known authentically. And it's here that we understand that if his motivation was obedience to the eternal purposes of God, his method was less about miracles and more about teaching. I heard a story once of a missionary who went to China. This is when the uh, communist uh, regime had moved in, and they, if, if you don't know the story, they effectively kicked out all of the foreign Christians and most of the other indigenous Christians they employed, and they either killed them or employed them in the most menial tasks imaginable. In fact, one of the great stories of that is they took Christians and they made them garbage men, which is a, which was in that culture was extremely lowly position. They went door to door collecting trash, and, and then they couldn't understand why the church continued to grow. When you just sent every Christian door to door, every single... See, it's like God knows what he's doing, right? Now, you think you can get rid of us? You just send us door to door. But this man had been a missionary, and he, he, had, he had been kicked out of the country, but they, they lightened up, and they would allow him back in. And so he makes his way back into uh, China. And in the customs, they found five Bibles in his bag, and, uh, and they allowed him to keep them. And he realized this is a test. I'm bringing five in. They're documenting that on my form. So if I bring five in, I better take five out or I'm going to spend the rest of my life in a Chinese prison, right? And so he decides that while he's walking around, he, he, he really desperately wants to meet some, some Christians there. He wants to encourage them. So he begins walking around the towns and markets and he comes up with this idea. He says, I'll just start like humming and whistling hymns as I walk. So he's like humming amazing grace as he walks through and, and he sees people taking notice. You know, he sees them sort of looking over, going, okay, what was, what's it? And this one lady made eye contact with him. And so he goes over to her. He, he spoke uh, Mandarin. He was able to communicate with her clearly. And, and he says, well, I know there's something you need. Just tell me one thing that you need. Can you imagine what that one thing was that she asked for? Yeah. She needed a Bible. That's the one thing she wanted. And so this man's in, he's in a bit of an ethical problem here, right? How do I, how do I, how do I, I've now guaranteed her I'll give you whatever you need, right? And uh, so he, he got creative. He took his Bibles, his five Bibles. He took one-fifth out of each one of them. And he, he just praying that the custom agents wouldn't be able to uh, r- discern that because they'd all be the same size. He took one-fifth out. He took some cardboard. He took a needle thread and an old T-shirt that his wife had. And, and he made a cover for it, and he presents her this just most hideous Bible you can imagine, right? To, which to her, though, was the most beautiful possession she'd ever been entrusted with. She had longed to hear the voice of God. She had a hunger and a thirst. I think Andrew prayed for that earlier, a hunger and a thirst for the word of God. And she was so desperate to hear it that even given the opportunity, she took this thing that we would, that we would hide away because it'd be embarrassing to have it on our table. She took that thing and she began to read and she began to drink in the Word of God. Most of us, you and I, we have, a, we have shelves full of Bibles. I mean, we, we've got them everywhere. I, I found one in our garage last week. Like, and I don't think any of my kids were having quiet time out in the garage, right? I mean, we've got so many of them that it's like, I think we ought to put a few out where the car is. I, that's the culture we live in. You get a free app and have the Bible on your phone. If you're really lazy, you can get that app to read it to you every day. While you're driving down the road. 
Something that really struck me this week is that I just don't know if we fully appreciate the fact that God has preserved for us some of the direct teaching of Jesus for us in the Bible. Like, we aren't left to guess at what he said. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to fill in the gaps. We can actually read it. Ironically, we don't know what Jesus taught in the temple that day. We have no record of what he said, but we know that whatever it was made an impression. We're told in verse 15 that the Jews marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? You see, they knew he had never had like formal training. He'd never been in their schools. He never sat under another rabbi and, and taken in his teaching. He had never adopted their patterns or assumed their, what was called their yoke. He'd never taken that on himself. He never seemed to quote any of their like famous rabbis, right? Jesus was from a working class family. I mean, they were carpenters, blue collar folks. D.A. Carson says they were astonished that someone who had not studied in one of their great rabbinical centers of learning or with one of the famous rabbis could have such command of the scripture. Jesus answered them. Look at his response there. He said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Do you see what he's saying there? You see what he's doing? He's making it clear that his teaching is not of this world. It comes from somewhere else. It comes from somewhere like alien somewhere foreign, somewhere beyond our limits. It's the claim, it's the same claim. I, w- I want to be as honest again as I can with you. It's the same claim that we make here every single week. Every single Sunday. It's a biblical principle that governs everything that we teach here. Every single thing. That's one of the reasons why we work straight through books of the Bible. If you've ever wondered that, how come we don't do like creative series with awesome graphics? I mean, honestly, if I were more creative, I'd be more tempted to do that. Or if we had somebody who wanted to help generate graphics, we might be into that. But we, as it stands, we go, you know what? God has given us his word in a, in a pretty clear order. It's probably easier to just follow that. And as soon as I say it's easier to do that, we reach a passage like this. One that we would, if given to our own devices and our own creativity, we'd probably just skip over. That's why we, that's why we emphasize the importance of Scripture by standing when we read it. I say this all the time. There is nothing more important that you will hear in this room ever than the actual word of God, which is only expressed through the Bible. That's why we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that aren't just nice to the ear, but that fill our hearts and minds with the word of God. Like, I hope you notice that. It's intentional. We want to saturate our hearts and minds with God's word. We want to echo what Jesus said to those people in the temple when he said, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. It's the teaching of him who has gathered us here even today. Listen, sometimes it's not easy. There are, there are a lot of times when it would be easier to just pick a topic come up with a cool sticker or graphic and go and find a couple of scriptures and just kind of proof text it and make our argument and then, and then leave out of here. That's what his brothers wanted. That's what this crowd at the temple wanted. That's what we want a lot of times, but that's, that's what we fight against because what we really want to do, what we really want to be about is what Jesus was about. He was about doing the will of of the Father. He says there in 17, look at that, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. And most of us, would, we would nod. 
If we weren't Presbyterian, there'd be a lot of people saying, Amen, right? We'd be all about that. But the truth is that what Jesus said is at times, the things that he says at times are going to collide with what we naturally want. His teaching is going to cause us to either change our direction or or to stand in open defiance and rebellion. It just is. And it's in those times that we have to remember, like Proverbs 3, 5, where we're told to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Man, how tempting it is to try and lean on my own understanding. And I know me. I know me. I know I don't have great understanding. And yet I'm still tempted to try and lean on that. But the truth is, we have to embrace the reality that our convenience doesn't override God's word. Our desire doesn't override God's word. Cost does not override God's word. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I'll be honest, I, I, I need that. Sometimes I need all of that, even in the same day. I need God to teach me. I need God to show me the areas of my life where I am going Wrong. I need to be corrected in both my wrong thinking and my wrong actions. And if you know me, <laughs> you know that I need training in righteousness. That means that my character needs to be refined. It needs to be purified. I, I, I wrote it and deleted it a couple. I, I, my character needs to be such that I am the man that my children think that I am. You see, I will never try to guilt you in the spiritual disciplines. That's a, that's a promise I try to make to, to everyone that I'm not going to guilt you. I'm not going to shame you into doing things for God. Now, should we pray more? I mean, absolutely, right? I mean, there's not a soul, there's not a Christian I've ever met who goes, you know what, man, the strongest part of my life is my prayer life. I just can't get enough of it. Almost everybody to a person, I get, yeah, I should probably pray. Like a lot, just ever. Yeah. I mean, obviously we should pray more. Should we give more of our time and money and resources and energy to the work of advancing the kingdom of God in this world? Absolutely we should. We should do that. Listen, football season is about to be upon us, and I know a whole bunch of people in here are going to spend a small fortune. I'm trying not to make eye contact with a soul, by the way. Um <laughs> I don't want to do that. So uh, you're going to spend a small fortune. You're going to spend countless hours. You're going to be, all, people who can't organize anything turn into master motivators when they're trying to get their tailgate together, right? All of a sudden, they got 20 people coming from out of town. They found hotel rooms. They got extra parking spots. But getting up on a Sunday morning? I won't finish that sentence. To, to watch boys chase a ball. preaching at myself. There is no doubt that our priorities are off. No doubt. Should we read the Bible more? Should we look to God's Word? Should we like try to actively tune our hearts to what the God of the universe has said to us, to creatures that He's created, that He has built, that He formed in a womb, that He gives life to, that if He doesn't say in this moment, be, we would not be. One of the great myths at the end of life is that God uh, tells us to die. 
<laughs> it's that he ceases to say live. Every moment belongs to him. And he, that God, would speak to us and we would say, you know, it's football season. We got a chance to win eight this year, right? I just, oh, I mean, what are we doing? Should we be reading God's word? Absolutely. What I want to tell you is that by his grace and mercy and in his goodness and sovereignty, the creator of all things has spoken to us. He has given us his teaching. He has seen fit to preserve it for us for, for 2,000 years. Should we be in touch with that? Absolutely. He has preserved that message for us and he's equipped you with a mind to discern. He's, that's a gift. Oh, and by the way, he's also placed you into a context where you have absolute freedom and liberty to at any moment you want to commune with God. In the last few verses of this passage, Jesus calls out their hypocrisy. I'm not going to lie. It's pretty tough. He saw through their pride. He saw through their skewed priorities. He saw through their superficial spirituality, that surface level religion that is so prevalent today. Listen, these people were varsity level church people. These were the starters on the team. The Jews he's talking to had more of the Bible memorized than you and I would even dream of attempting to memorize. By all accounts, most of them had the first five books of the Bible basically committed to memory. That includes Deuteronomy. Had it memorized. They had studied the law. But still, what does he say? They judge by appearances and not with right judgment. That's what he said there in 24. The one work that Jesus is referring to in 21 was when he had healed a lame man on a Sabbath day. You remember that scene? He he goes to the man at the Bethesda pool. He tells him to get up, take up your bed, and walk. That's what he told him, and the man did it. He did that. And in their tradition, in accordance with their law, uh, while they would circumcise a baby on the eighth eighth day to, to not mess with tradition, the idea of healing someone on a Sabbath day, well, in their minds, it was worth killing him. That sounds ridiculous, right? I mean, it should. It is. Rick Phillips pointed out that the whole point of the Sabbath was to foster the well-being of God's people. The whole point. Sabbath isn't for God. He wasn't tired. God doesn't get tired and need a break. The Sabbath was for us. And we need rest. We need restoration. It was for the well-being of God's people. Just a few months after this, after this scene that we're looking at, just a few months after this, Jesus would again come to Jerusalem. The controversy around him uh, would continue to grow and escalate in those months. He would be arrested. He'd be paraded through a mockery of a trial that violated more laws than they ever would have charged him with breaking. He was wrongfully convicted on false allegations. He would ultimately be nailed to a cross on what we now call Good Friday which is a strange name for a day where an innocent man was killed. Isn't it? It's a strange name for a day that an innocent man would die in agony for the sins of others. You know, the only reason we call it Good Friday is because of what happened that next Sunday. 
when in the midst of the darkness of the tomb, we, we, we just sang this, light burst forth in that darkness. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, he inaugurated a new Sabbath, a new rest. Because for those who trust in him alone for salvation, for those who trust in Jesus alone for salvation, they receive the, the ultimate healing. More than, more than what our eyes can see or, or our ears can hear or even, even just legs that can work, the healing we receive in Christ is, is an ultimate healing. That, that those of us who trust in him alone for our salvation, we actually join in his resurrection. The dead, the dead are raised to life. It's the greatest Sabbath work that we could ever conceive of. You see, that's the story of the Bible. That's the story that we have to tell us, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. People, people like you and me. It's that, it's that he came to seek and to save the lost. Again, people like you and me. And so being found in him, you and I can now echo the words of that centurion that guy who had a front row seat to one of the greatest atrocities in human history, the centurion who stood at the foot of the cross. And when Jesus breathed out his last, right, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two and rocks began to quake, and, and even they say that dead people came out of the tombs, it, that, that centurion, do you remember what he said? He answered that question that I asked you at the beginning. When I said, who is this guy? That centurion gives one of the best answers you'll find in the Bible. He saw this happening. He saw this man who he had helped put to death. And he answered that question, who is this guy? Just like the centurion, we can respond, truly, this man was the son of God. That's who he is. That's the rest that you and I are invited into, that he would come and claim us. And that's who still speaks to us through his word today. I hope we're listening not just on Sunday morning. If you're counting on me, you will be really disappointed in this life. But God's going to give you ears to hear. He's going to give you eyes to see. Let's pray for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I confess to you, as I have many, many times this week, that I come to you distracted, I come to you thinking uh, with a list of things that I've got to do or that I want to do or I need to do. I, I come to you every day. I, I pray that you would help us as your people to come to you as our Father, to come to you asking you to show us what to do, asking you to lead, asking you to guide, asking you to go before and to come after, asking you to walk side by side. I pray that, pray that as you... As you lead and guide us, Lord, that we would be obedient to follow. I thank you for the grace that you've given us in Christ, who, who took the penalty that we deserve upon himself, who bled and died so that we might live. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in that truth this week as your children. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.